To be 100% clear, this is about the 98 uh, anime film, not the more recent one, or any of the other Ghost in the Shell works. One of the things I find funniest about this is I have heard many, many people, friends, viewers, internet goers, praise this film as one of the best anime films ever made. I'm not saying that's true or not, that, don't worry, I'm not going to try to b drop a bombshell on you, but uh, what I find amusing about it is apparently this film really didn't do well in the box office. Now, it made back its money when it got to the home market, and of course is considered a classic, but this is just yet another example. I swear the longer, I, the more fiction I consume, the more examples of Princess Bride effect I keep seeing. And for those of you not aware of that, it's the idea that something is good, but isn't recognized as good initially, and thus is a financial failure. And then, over time, people are like, oh, hey, this is actually good. <laughs> Hence, Princess Bride effect. Two things I want to comment on before I get into the movie proper. First of all, the animation is a little unusual in this one. I do like the use of the blinking thing. That's actually a really nice touch. It's, it's something I've commented on in a couple of other points of fiction as well. We are so accustomed to seeing people blink that someone who just doesn't blink and just looks at you with, with unblinking eyes is something that starts to grab your attention. It's just, oh, what the hell? And that actually was a nice touch to help flesh out the major and a couple other characters as well. Of course, then there's Bato, which I hope I'm pronouncing right. They don't say the name all that often in the film, and uh, I suck at everything. But the point being, I, uh, he, of course, doesn't even have the, the normal eyes to use, so that's a nice thing. But he is, of course, voiced by Richard Epcar. I like Richard Epcar. He's awesome. Funny story, though. One time I was sitting down playing Kingdom Hearts 2 for the first time, and I, several of my friends were in the room with me because we were like, oh, God, this game's going to be awesome. This is you know back in the day, obviously. And we fired it up, and Richard Epcar starts voicing Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, and someone's like, that's Bato! I'm like, who? Because I had no idea who he was talking about. <laughs> I just thought that was very funny. One of the things I like most about this film is, and, and goes to the shell in general, is it, you, it, it approaches its setting as if it's an actual believable setting, and it bothers to put the time and attention into detail into making things make sense. Now, I thought about jotting down a whole bunch of examples of this, but ultimately I just want to tell you the general concept of what I'm talking about. Too often in fiction, and this is something we all just kind of get used to, I think, but it's becoming more and more prevalent the more I do this job. Too often in fiction, there's something where it's like, here's this technology, and they don't really use it right, or they don't use it properly, or they only use it once, right? It's such a common thing in fiction, especially science fiction. But to see it here, it looks like they sat down and thought, okay, so we have cybernetic body parts and new tech, and of course we've got the ability to hack into people's brains. Okay, that's all cool. Now how do we use that, right? Like, how would that use? And it feels like the actual writers and creators sat down and thought about, uh, of course this probably goes to the manga more than the movie, but still sat down and thought about exactly how all those abilities and powers and technologies and whatnot would be used in everyday life. Because this feels like a setting which is more down-to-earth, believable, and normal. Yeah, sure, we have cybernetic brains, but whatever, that's just a Tuesday. I mean, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. After all, uh, to use an example right here, how often do you think about having your phone like this, right? How often do you think about wireless internet? How often do you think about you know all the advances we have that we just use on a daily basis and just kind of consider normal? Too often fiction doesn't do that. Instead, it, it uses it once and not to the logical conclusion of the, the extent to which the technology could be used. That added an amazing layer of believability to the setting for me. 
I also was thinking about how I would classify this film, and I would do it in two parts. The second part is more relevant later, but the first part starts off right off the bat. It's a political intrigue story, because a lot of what's going on here is outside of the human element, is mostly about the politics between Section 9 and Section 6, and their interactions both with each other and the foreign minister and the nearby uh, Republic of uh, Gavel, I believe is what they called it, and all that. It, it's, it's good stuff. I'm, I'm not going to detail and bore you with it, but it's good stuff and it kept me engaged, because what we have basically is three parts to this movie. We have action, we have character, and we have politics, and that's good stuff. I'm with that. But I do think the talky sections were a bit too much. This is probably my biggest complaint outside of the obvious one uh, when it comes to this film. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, Laura, you just wanted super action set piece. No. No, I really don't. First of all, I enjoy a good action scene as much as anyone else. But an action scene can't be an action scene. It has to be an action scene that serves a purpose other than action. At least that's my opinion. It, need, it doesn't... It, cool is nice, but cool is not enough, in other words. Um, action scenes that, that service the plot or showcase something or have interesting effects to them that, that exposit certain parts of the setting <coughs> or the technology or whatever. You know, that's, that's what I want out of an action scene. And in fact, pardon me. Point in fact, one of the things that I appreciate about this film was how relatively little action it actually had throughout it. Instead, it was mostly just focusing on, you know, what I usually consider to be the meat of, of a fictional work. The story, the characters, the dynamic, the setting, the plot, you know, all that stuff. Meat! That being said, there are a few scenes, most of them with, in fact, I believe all of them, now that I'm thinking about it, with the major, where she just starts talking. And talking, and talking, and talking, and then finally things move forward. And it just felt a little bit coarse in what is otherwise an excellently written script. Those sections really always felt lacking to me, personally. And each one just kind of stood out. I, I imagine this was a deliberate approach, because what it feels like is an artistic thing, rather than an in-character thing. So, in other words, it, you know, picture that instead of the major saying it, imagine if the, the screen just kind of went grayscale for a minute, and you just see her narrator just starts saying everything the major's saying, and then we go back to the film. I wouldn't have even noticed a difference, other than the obvious things. It just felt like unusual, but anyways, moving on. I like the very idea of Section 9 and how they operate, you know, the counterterrorism, pseudo-police, dealing with the cybernetic as well as the physical, and the need for both existing as well as the tool set that, that such an organization would require. As an aside, there's a lot of little bits of dialogue, like, I'd say a dozen or so bits throughout the movie, that help establish the methods they use and the, the counterproduction, or not the counterproduction, but the, uh, the countermeasures they use and the checks and balances they use to make sure that they still operate properly. Just all sorts of little stuff. Believability. There's a whole lot of believability, a whole lot of brushstroke theory going on here. But what I like best is there's this bit where the major exposits for a while in the talkie scene I just mentioned, talking about Togusa. God, I hope I'm pronouncing all these names right, by the way, because I'm, I'm going to fail miserably, I already know. I say Bato because that's what I hear my friends call him, and I say Togusa because I think that's how they called it in the film. They only say his name like twice. Anyways, I liked him as a character, first of all, but I also liked him as an inclusion into the concept of Section 9. So we've got the super cybernetic major, we've got the partially augmented heavy of Richard Epcar, Bato, and then we've got the human. 
And all three of these serve as a different function, a different set piece. It, it expands the toolkit of Section 9 in general, and the Major herself says as much to him, that we need as much variety as we can, otherwise we're just going to all fall into the same general type of, of uh, echo chamberiness, basically. And that's cool, and I like that. I like that concept. Diversity and, res and, and teamwork of differing points is something that I'm really big on in general. I also like Togusa because his whole scene where he just kind of... This is, this is how much of a film geek I am. My favorite scene in this film, no joke, is actually when Togusa just sits down, and there's basically no dialogue. It's just him being like... And he looks over and he sees the two fancy cars. Now, as we find out later, what he's thinking is... They didn't drive those themselves. That's just not their style. So he decides to look into things. And, he find, and he's like, all right, pull up the footage of these two people arriving. Okay, nothing unusual there. Hmm. Hang on. Those doors took a while to close. Three full seconds longer than they should have. Give me an infrared. Okay. Give me the pressure sensor. And it was just a really great scene as he just kind of deduces his way through it very logically very in, in, in character, very in setting, and it all just made sense. And it just kind of showed his particular inclusion and why he is valuable to the team. And then, of course, they had to kind of sort of ruin that by ben, then explaining everything he just did with the dialogue between him and the Major. But nevertheless, it was good stuff. There's another little tidbit, and I highlighted this in my notes here because this is actually one of the more interesting aspects of the film to me, and that's the way it presents the everyday life. How many of you guys have had to wait on a semi-regular occurrence? Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, waiting for a train, waiting for a bus, uh, waiting for the trash people to come by, waiting for Amazon or UPS or whatever to deliver something, right? Now, I don't know about you guys, just to give you my personal thoughts on this, none of the things I just mentioned, and I've had to deal with all of those in my life, even recently, are super on time. In fact, it's so bad that, for example, if I were to have a game, like a physical cartridge game, like a PS4 game or a, a Switch game or whatever, that was being sent to me, mailed to me, the day it comes out, I usually schedule the premiere run for that game the day after, because I have no idea at what time that package is going to reach me, because the variable point for when it could arrive is a matter of hours. And I imagine, <clears throat> I imagine a lot of you have a similar experience, right? There's this little line where the garbage people are there, and the garbage ghost guy, oh my god, I'll get to that in a minute, and he mentions, come on, we're already 40 seconds late. That just resonated with me, because that speaks volumes about how patterned, about how, for lack of a better way to put it, programmed, just society has become at this point with regards to how it applies its technology. The very idea that the trash people have to keep track of, of their route Within a mat to the point where they have to measure seconds, is is just kind of insane in its own right, isn't it? And I love that. I love those little world building details. I just absolutely adore the world building in this film. Anyways, so <clears throat> then we talk about we get some a really cool scene with the entire trash people thing. There's actually it's actually funny because in its own right, on first viewing, this is my first time watching this film, by the way. Like I said, I've, I've watched several Ghost in the Shell things, but not never this before. Uh, at first viewing, it makes perfect sense that the guy is just kind of a dip, right? That he's an idiot. And you'll notice, though, that the photo he showed the guy, the guy never actually looks at the photo. That's a nice little touch. But anyways, so 
he, he he's like, oh my god, what the cops are on us? I've got to go warn that guy. And at first, he just looks like he's a moron. In hindsight, it makes far more sense that he is following his programming, that his memory has been, well, <laughs> gone basically. The the ghost the ghost hacking the ghost memories, and that is so messed up. I just want to say that. That is so many levels of messed up. Oh my god. And it really shines a light on how technology can be used in a, well, let's call it a negative light. Because this poor guy, and the, the guy talking to him, the, the voice acting wasn't great in the film in general, in the English version, because obviously I watched the English version. Um, <clears throat> but it was actually one of the few times where the guy talking to him and explaining to him that, yeah, by the way, all your memories of your wife and child are fake, he still sounded sympathetic. Very to the point. But it's like, this isn't your fault, okay? I'm not yelling at you. I'm not trying to break your world. But this is the truth, and you need to accept this. And the best part is, as he discussed, like, no, no, you don't understand. I've, I've been married for... No, no, you actually lived there for 10 years. Uh, we checked the records. Here's the photo, and th there's no one in the photo except for him, and he's just, he's just flipping out, and the guy's like, can you... He's like, no, but my, my daughter, I love my daughter so much. All right. What's, what's her name? What's her birthday? What was the first time she ever walked? What's the first time she ever talked? And he starts grilling him for specifics. Individual details. And that's when it just kind of slowly occurs to the guy. And you can see, and this is where the animation really shines, the guy is just like struggling to come up with the, the realization that he doesn't have access to the finer details of the memories. This is, in my opinion, the actual dominant theme of the entire film. And I'll get to that more later. But it's wonderfully put right here, in this, in this moment where we find out about this whole ghosting thing. Uh, so then there's this uh, issue where the, the, the Major and Bato are talking about implants and whether you're human and all that fun stuff. And this kind of leads into what I kind of feel like was one of the intended themes of the film. And I always say it that way, because sometimes I, I pull themes out of films that aren't intended. But in this case, that's definitely true. Because, obviously, you know, we have the political intrigue story. But then the second major story, which I said I'd talk about, is very simple. What is a man? Hang on, let me get my, my day cool here. What is a man? A miserable little pile of secrets! Oh, it, it. Point being, that we see a couple of people's perspective on exactly what defines a human. What makes you, you? The three biggest and most obvious ones are Bato, the Puppet Master, and the Major. All three of them give their own insight into this perspective throughout the course of the film. Now, I'm going to say this in kind of reverse order, because the Major's thought is, uh -huh. Like, she basically has no idea. That is effectively her characterization and indeed character arc for the film. That she doesn't know, and she's not sure, and that bothers her. Puppet Master, he takes a very interesting perspective because he approaches it from two separate angles. First, he insists that the undefinable is what defines them. In other words, something that you cannot put a coded definition onto is by its nature, by the very existence, something that then defines something else. Now, this is actually a form of real-life logic development. I've talked many times before about how logic usually starts with a baseline. But a baseline is not something that is necessarily absolutely true. It is just something that is serves as a baseline. In fact, in real life existence, and for much of human history, most baselines have been assumptions or presumptions. Well, this must be true, and therefore we can deduce based on that. 
and life, memories, existence, humanity, all of those things really do kind of fall under those equations because defining a human is one of those interesting things, and this is true in real life too, that's harder to do than it probably should be. One of the old adages, and this goes into more legal lingo, is that you know it when you see it cannot be used as legal definition. Because it's true, right? Most people, with the enormous flow of information that we as human beings are used to taking in, can look at a person and say, that's a person. But, okay, that's a bad example, actually, but you get my point, right? But if we were to actually sit down and okay, well, define it. Uh, okay, hang on. Uh, they've got a soul. Okay, what's a soul? Uh, they've got their memories. Okay, how is memory defined? Uh, okay, hang on a second. <laughs> The intangible, this, this has been such a theme for this year's ruminations, the intangible helps to define the tangible, and that's the puppet master's perspective. He does say something else later on, though. I, by the way, I presume he, because it's a male voice actor, but obviously the puppet master is neither. Just getting that out there. The puppet master uh, says that there's two key definitions for him as to what it would mean to be human and what he seeks so adamantly and fervently, and that would be the ability to reproduce and the ability to die. Now that's funny to me because that is bearing it down to the most tangible level. The most base level biological purpose of biological creatures. Make more of you and then die. Make more of you and then die. And that is pretty much bared down to its most basic level. What I find most interesting about this is this makes sense because he, by definition, has most of the intangible qualities of what would be defined as sentient, sapient life. By all accounts, droid effect has taken place. They even describe it. They don't call it droid effect, of course, because that's my own term. But they have full-tilt droid effect going throughout the course of this as he has been developing and, and learning and growing throughout the network and all of his interactions leading to him gaining this form of intelligent self-will. I like, I like when he overtly just asks for asylum. And what's funny is they probably would have actually considered granting it if not for the camoed guys who were you know, causing a ruckus. But anyways, I digress. Naturally, of course, uh, despite his intangible qualities, he feels he lacks the tangible ones. Probably especially true since the Puppet Master doesn't really have a body in any strictest sense of the word. He is, in fact, pure code. Thus, his desire to merge with the Major. Now... <laughs> This leads me to another step, because Bato, his definition is brilliant, and actually probably kind of my own as well, at least a little bit, because his response is, who cares? <laughs> and I love that. I love that. That's so human. It is so human to say, yeah, I mean, we could sit here and stare at our navels for a while and try to define this, but uh, who cares? I got stuff to do. Let's go. Come on. Come on. Toss me a beer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I love that. Um, so, <laughs> I very much enjoy uh, the, the, the final fight that happens. The fact that she asked them to shoot out the ceiling in order to cause the debris to come down to take out the camo. Again, very intelligent, very sense-making. And then she sees that it's a tank. A walking tank, obviously, but a tank. Now, what I love most about this is two things. First and foremost, she and everyone else flips the hell out when they realize it's a tank. Again, this kind of goes contrary to the usual action-y approach, especially in anime, but this is true in live action as well. You know, you see a tank, it's like, okay, I can take out, I gotta take out a helicopter with a car, right? 
Instead, she sees this tank and she's like, okay, get out, get out now. And she orders the helicopter, who is who, a military helicopter, which has guns on it, which is orbiting the area, to get the hell out because there's a tank. I love how they approach this as if this is a truly deadly serious thing because it should be. It's a freaking tank. This is not Metal Gear Solid. Then, <laughs> she basically goes after it anyways, and, and this is my favorite part, loses... She actually fails to take this thing down. Now, she does injure it a bit, and she certainly distracts it for long enough to Bato to come in with actual heavy guns, you know, anti-materials uh, equipment. That being said, I had to stop watching for parts of that section because blah. Anyways, that's all I'm going to say about that. That's all I'm going to say about that. And uh, so, you know, she and, and Puppet, Ma Puppet Master have their big heart-to-heart. And the two of them discuss the things, they decide to merge, and then Bato covers her head, and then recovers her head, and then shoves her head into a new body, blah, 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 and we get to the end of the film. Which brings me, of course, to what I believe to be the actual, probably unintentional, theme of the film. The nature of how definitions are utilized isn't really the theme. It would be more accurate to say how those definitions matter. This goes back to what I was talking about with the memory thing, like I like I mentioned earlier. You know, um, it's it's so easy to look at at all these surface details, but the surface details do not do the definitions themselves. Okay, let, let me let me start my sentence over here. I would say that the predominant film, possibly unintentional, uh, predominant theme of the film, possibly unintentional, is that the surface details don't matter. Not really. It is the in-depth details. It's actually looking at the specifics. It's digging s s deeper than skin deep and trying to get to the actual specific no-reallys that help to add to the overall depth and complexity that is life. In other words, that life is not simple. Not, not just that life in existence, but life as the definition of a living being is not simple. It's not something you can define by saying, you know, breeds and dies but rather that there is so much more depth underneath that that helps to actually really make something into a real, true, complex, living thing. And this, this, this details throughout the whole thing. This is why I brought your attention to it when it came to the memories, because the surface memories were not real. They were only surface memories. All of the details, the depth, the complexity were gone. He felt like he really loved his daughter, but when he actually was challenged on the matter, he couldn't back that up. I bet any single one of you right now who has someone you love, uh, girlfriend, boyfriend, a child, grandparents, mothers, parents, friends, brothers, sisters, whatever, I bet you could think of that person and dozens, no, thousands of different thoughts and feelings and memories flood you when you really think about that person. Because that's life. The complexity itself is arguably the definition of life. That it is not a single variable, but it is thousands, if not millions, of variables that all coincide to make a perfect painting with thousands of little brushstrokes. And I love the way the film presents that. I hope you guys have tolerated my thoughts on this. This is definitely an outsider's perspective situation, walking into something like this, and an anime, no less. Nevertheless, I've done my best. Sorry about the throat thing. That's why I've got the Dayquil right here. I'll see you next time, guys.